Welcome to the show. Today I'm playing an excerpt from a panel I recently moderated at an FCA Bethesda event. The panelists were Emery Sulak, the Principal Deputy CIO at the Energy Department, Jamie Holcomb, the CIO for the Patent and Trademark Office, Venus Goodwine, the Chief Information Security Officer for the Agriculture Department, and Bo Hauser, the Census Bureau's Chief Information Security Officer. First, we hear from Bo Hauser from the Census Bureau. You know, we just completed the 2020 census, which, you know, talk about scale, that was certainly a large scale operation nationwide, up to 500,000 employees walking door to door to bug the folks that didn't fill in the responses and so forth. So big operation really highlighted a lot of opportunities in the cyber realm. And so one of the things that we're doing now is really emphasizing those lessons learned from that operation and then taking those things out across the the census enterprise. Because we do a lot more than just the 2020 census, obviously, right? The unemployment numbers come out of the census, the economic indicators come out of census. So a lot of really key information and, and somewhat sensitive information comes out of census continuously. And so we really want to maximize the benefit of what we learn from that large scale operation. We did release a an RFI last summer, a risk request for information that that got into a lot of the details of what we're thinking. We had a really great response from that. So stay tuned on on where we go in the future from an acquisition standpoint for our enterprise cybersecurity program. And the other thing I'll highlight is as an agency, the census is really wrestling with how we see ourselves in the future, right? And so we've relied on surveys for uh, for decades as our primary means of collecting information, but now we know that we're in the information age, right? There's information everywhere around us. And so we're really debating how we can leverage that information to stay relevant, minimize the burdens on the citizens, maximize the value of the products that we uh, produce and stay relevant as, a, as the largest federal statistical agency. And then from a technology standpoint, how do we need to adjust from a technology and a security standpoint to really enable that uh, that future vision, what, wherever we might land on that spectrum. All right, Bo, a couple things to quick follow-ups with you. First of all, thank you for mentioning the RFI. A lot of people are probably wondering about it. So I'll ask you uh, just a very simple question about that, and then I have one more, maybe more complicated. Timeline. Everyone wants to know timeline. When is there an RFP? Is there going to be an RFP? Is there anything more you can just tell us to so people don't call you and, and send you emails over the next week? Yeah, and, and you know as well as I do, a lot of that is very close hold information. We want to make sure everything is fair from an acquisition standpoint, but we're really pushing hard to get an RFP out on that. And, and again, I would refer folks to the RFI if they're looking for uh, details and our acquisition office, right? You, anyone can always reach out to them as well, but we're, we're really pushing to get that out. And then real quick, you mentioned you, a lot of lessons learned from the 2020 census. What's one or two that you, when we talk about speed to, and security, what's one or two that you're really looking at to implement across census or at least part, part of census that really stood out to you said, hey, this worked, this was successful? Yeah, one of the main things I'll highlight is the need for any cybersecurity program to combine defense and depth, which is you know the, the, the model that we all know and love very well. And it's still a very important model, build the layered defense model, make it hard for the adversary. But what we also learned is complementing that with um, a threat-based approach uh, is, is key, it's critical, right? Who are those actors, whether they're cyber criminal or whether they're host nation actors, who are those actors that we care most about, that we feel like 
have a higher likelihood of targeting us. And so what we did at Census was develop a dossier for each one of those actors, right? Like bulk PII is something that we worry about at Census because we have a lot of uh, information. And so who are the actors that deal in that space? develop a dossier on their techniques and their tactics, and whether you get that information to your pen testers so they can simulate those things, your SOC to set up tripwires to defend against those specific tactics, your threat hunters to, to scour the environment for the, the telltale signs of those tactics, right? It's just a, a, a huge force multiplier when it comes to modern cybersecurity. So that's one thing I'll leave you with. All right. Good example. Thank you for that. Let's turn to uh, Jamie Holcomb. Let's get the CIO's perspective of speed and cyber. Jamie's from PTO. Jamie, tell us something we don't know. Wow. I think everybody knows everything, don't they? Ah, the moment you think that, that's the moment the attackers get you. So what's the thing you don't know? What they're doing. Because believe me, being paranoid is being strong. It's not, I know they're all after me. So you're not paranoid. They're just after me. So if you have that attitude, it'll be a question of when they breach you, not if they breach you. And so having that attitude also prepares you to have the contingency plans in there. And so one of the things we did, especially with all the recent break-ins and so forth, is we're retraining the force. So instead of the regular PowerPoints that we throw up every year, hey, look at your security training, click through everything, and just say, yeah, I know. No, we actually created videos. It takes about 53 minutes on one, 10 and 15 minutes on two others. And what you actually do is you interface with the video and you do role play. And so through this way, social engineering and clickbait and phishing attempts are taken down. In fact, we do our own phishing inside the enterprise. And if we give you scores, you'll know, hey, we got you, we hooked you and you might have to go into a little remedial training. So we really take it upon ourselves to be active and be get out there and make sure people understand, be cyber safe. That's what we're doing. All right, as someone who I have to admittedly so gets, gets caught by one of 10 phishing exercises for my company, uh, I feel the pain of, of your folks too. So, so walk me through, how are you all doing with that? Are people learning? Do you see a real difference by the better training or is it maybe too early? Well, it's a little early right now because we've given the goal as February 28th to get everything done. But I will say I've gotten a mixed bag. Uh, some people saying, hey, it's too long. I got too much to do. But others are saying, thank you so much. It's been so long since I've really thought about it. And that's what it takes. I mean, you need to take that mental attitude and think about cybersecurity, not just assume that, oh, yeah, they're going to take care of it. As you said, 95% is human error. It's nothing to do with the IT or the technical wizardry or anything else. It's all about good discipline with employees. We have to take a break. Today, I'm playing an excerpt of a panel I moderated during a recent FCA Bethesda event on security. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. Today, I'm playing an excerpt of a panel I moderated during a recent FCA Bethesda event on security. My guests on the panel were Emery Sulak, the Principal Deputy CIO at the Energy Department, Jamie Holcomb, the CIO for the Patent and Trademark Office, Venus Goodwine, 
the Chief Information Security Officer for the Agriculture Department, and Bo Hauser, the Chief Information Security Officer for the Census Bureau. In the second segment of the show, we start off hearing from Venus Goodwine, the Chief Information Security Officer at the Agriculture Department. From a USDA perspective and from the CISL perspective, of course, um, security at speed um, really is about um, understanding the needs and the requirements of our agencies and mission areas when it comes to helping them provide the type of services or products that they actually need, you know, um, for their users. So Jason, you and I've talked um, several times and you always hear me say that security is a, um, a business enabler. And what I mean by that is it's my role, you know, as a CISO is to talk to all of the agencies and mission areas and the business owners and to understand how can cybersecurity help you do your business better? How can, you know, I as a CISO through policies and procedures help you deliver products faster that are relevant? And so what we're doing at USDA now is capitalizing on this CICD pipeline, building this software factory within USDA. And everybody understands CICD and we understand DevSecOps and how, you know, DevSecOps is really the foundation for CICD. But what we're doing is think about we have 29 actually different agencies and they all have developers. So, of course, they're developing in their own way. So imagine that as a CISO having to issue an authority to operate for all of those applications, it is more prudent and easier if I could just certify the process, meaning that if I certify the end-to-end process, what comes out of the process then becomes certified. So I don't have to do every application, I just do the process. And so, and that's what we're doing um, at USDA is creating these software factories. One, it starts with having one, a certified platform to develop on. You know, as you know, USDA has a FedRAMP certified cloud. So we've created an environment for development within our PaaS environment. And so that's already certified. So that was the first step. The second thing was creating a technology stack. As you move from planning and develop phase um, in the process of software development and then move to the deployment, and having that orchestration in the middle, that automation of all of those processes, that's what creates your pipeline. That's what creates this factory, so to speak. So think about you know, a typical factory, right? As you go through the assembly line, every piece and part isn't inspected. It's at the end, but there are quality controls set throughout that process to make sure that the thresholds are met. And whenever there's an anom- anomaly, it's identified. Same thing when you have a software factory, there are thresholds set to help you identify that something has gone wrong and that that product that comes out on the end may be a defect. And so, but the automation to that is the key. So having one that certified platform to develop, having the automation to ensure that you remove some of the manual processes in development. And so what does that do for my agencies that have to develop develop and deliver services to? If I'm rural development and I am, you know, trying to provide all these services to the 60 million people that live in rural America and having this, this, you know, to deliver different type of services to to provide either, rather it's home loans or rather it's utility services or whatever those services that are required for RD, then how do I make sure that the developers can create something that is fast, you know, and at the speed of need. That is what the software factory is going to give them. It's going to allow the developers to be able to to provide those products um, quickly in those instances. And then we have different examples in our firefighting mission area as well. All right. Interesting, Venus. Those two things come to mind right off the bat. Number one, did you check in with your friends at the Air Force or other agencies about software factories? They're big on it. We know DOD is big on it. 
did you model, copy, borrow, steal from them? Well, something you probably don't know if people don't know is, you know, I came from the Air Force. And so working with um, Lauren Knautzenberger there, um, I was really one of the plank owners in helping um, figuring out what was going to be the security process when you have a software factory. So working with the Kessel Run team, I did learn some tricks and, and, and tools from there. And of course, I brought it with me to USDA. So yes, there's definitely some collaboration amongst myself and my colleagues over at Air Force. I kind of thought so, but I wanted to ask that question. And then real quick, uh, the other piece of this is, it sounds like the software factory is not quite launched yet. So it sounds like it's it's in the process. Right. But do you expect once this is launched to accelerate the time for, for capabilities by, do you have goals if we could get capabilities out in, in two weeks, in a month? Now, given every capability is different, every piece of software is different, but do you have some goals that you want to kind of point toward? And when do you expect the software factory to, to get up and running at, at least initial? So right now we actually have two pilots. So as you know, I've seen this work and I know how it works. And so I know that it it really can decrease your, your time to market, so to speak, and make sure that you have secure products. So even in the products that we currently have, if I want to do modernization of those products, I don't have to wait the six to nine months. You can make code changes and deliver products daily. You can actually do that when you have a certified process and when you maximize the automation that's required. And those are the types of things that we're trying to do. So with our with our, our forest service, we're creating, you know, over this next month and the pilot is to just make sure that we're starting with a product that we already have and we just do modernization. Yep, you know, and see that, yes, that worked with the modernization. And then we're also starting a different pilot with another organization that's creating a, a product from scratch. So yeah, so we definitely in the next month and definitely the next three months, we'll be able to have this up and running. So very aggressive timeline, but you know, your USDA, that's what we like to do, right? All right. I have a ton more to ask you about that, but I want to bring Emery in and then we Absolutely. can get to audience questions. Emery from Energy, tell me something I don't know. One of the things that we operate or deployed last year was an enhanced training program for authorizing officials so that we can really help them make better informed decisions going forward because we really want that distributed environment where risk decisions are being made at the mission operational level. And so what we did this year is that we've taken that program that we started last year and we looked at our ATO process and we've recently started piloting our new rapid authorization to operate process, ATO process, again, somewhat based on ideas and stuff that we saw at Navy but also other areas that we really wanted to focus on. So some of the three th um, some of the things that we really looked at, we had three kind of goals that we wanted to take a look at. We wanted to rethink compliance. You know, one of the things I've seen every time I've gone into a new org federal organization is you see a compliance program that is based on decades of audit reports and decades of compliance managers thinking that, you know, this is the best way to, you know, eliminate this risk. And it's not really managing the risk. It was often the process of eliminating all opportunities for making a failure. So you'll see people saying, it's like, well, you know, in order to create a plan of action and milestone, you know, you have to send one, you have to formalize it, you have to have it reviewed, you have to have it closed out. And these processes over 20 years have just grown so burdensome um, that an ATO by itself, just the paperwork on that becomes enormous because and, and it's something that I've told people in, in previous positions, it was like, there is not a time in the entire universe that leadership has ever asked me how I'm doing on my low risk home. So why are we tracking them to this level of detail and so forth? 
So I think the first part is just stepping back and saying, how many of these decisions that we made 20 years ago or 10 years ago are still relevant? A good example of that is in the maximum telework environment. Like, you know, we made decisions about what we wanted to have available on our laptops. Well, that was before we had everybody working from home in terms of microphones and cameras and, and so forth. Yet, you know, is there a greater risk now because everybody has a cell phone, you know, probably personal, sitting right next to their laptop that is just as easily compromised in many cases. So really helping those authorizing officials making better risk-based decisions and challenging us in terms of policies, procedures, SOPs that we may have designed as a result of an audit from 15 years ago. So the second part of this approach for a rapid ATO is incorporating new approaches. So we deployed an enterprise contract for crowdsource penetration testing last year. We've incorporated that and made it available to anybody and anybody at any time that they want to deploy it. And they can use that for better informing their operational risk rather than their paperwork risk um, and being able to challenge it. But it's not just that. It's not just bringing and maximizing you know, crowdsourcing. It's also about bringing in new investments, new technologies, literally doing a 100% review of our investments. Are we making the best investments that we can? And then incorporating this third part into our deployment that we did last year, which is deploying our big data platform, making sure that the latest tools and technologies are feeding our big data platform with cyber sensor data across the organization, both at the perimeter and internally, so that we can do more advanced work and we can partner with our labs here at DOE and say, you know, how do we incorporate artificial intelligence? How do we do the next level of cyber defenses? Well, we got to have the data to use. We've got to have the people thinking about it in the right way. So from a top-down perspective, it's making sure the authorizing officials know what they can do, and then building the infrastructure to make sure that they're capable of doing it. So this is kind of the big approach that we took in the past year to just really make sure people are thinking about risk as risk, not as an audit barrier. All right, good stuff, Emery. There's plenty to follow up with you with. So I'm going to go with the question that just popped to my mind as soon as you went through this. You said we're rethinking compliance, we're incorporating new processes, we're using data, data in a different way. The one thing you didn't mention is your friends in the IG. Are, how are they part of this discussion? Because you can do all this and then the IG comes in and slaps you on the wrist and says, well, Emery, you didn't do X, Y, and Z, and you had to do it and you didn't do it, so minus one. Uh, what, what's the conversations with them? You know, that's always an ongoing conversation. And anytime you have a new process, you're always trying to socialize it. But you know what, and honestly, the IG is saying, are you doing what you say you're doing? So the real trick here is let's make sure we're doing what we're saying we're doing. A lot of times you get into trouble because what you've done is you've changed the process and you never actually put it in paper. You know, you know yes, that is a, a burdensome step to kind of define that process and say, how do we make better risk decisions? And the one that they always ask is, how do you define your risk threshold? So what did we do? We published a new risk assessment methodology for cybersecurity last year. So making sure that when you talk about these things that we're making them in an educated, informed way and the OIG is very responsive to that. Now they can complain about the process, absolutely. But at least you know we're, we're doing it from the same standpoint of this is how we feel we've met you know, the federal requirements for it. And this is where we want to make sure people are empowered to make decisions where it affects their mission. You know, in OIG, it's like, good, you can, you can argue about us trying to achieve our mission. 
you know, or you can help us improve our processes. And it's, it's just, as long as you maintain a strong relationship with them and don't see them as an adversary, but as a way to kind of build that and make yourself better. We have to take a break. Today I'm playing an excerpt of a panel I moderated during a recent FCA Bethesda event on security. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. Today, I'm playing an excerpt of a panel I moderated during a recent FCA Bethesda event on security. My guests on the panel were Emery Sulak, the Principal Deputy CIO at the Energy Department, Jamie Holcomb, the CIO for the Patent and Trademark Office, Venus Goodwine, the Chief Information Security Officer for the Agriculture Department, and Bo Hauser, the Chief Information Security Officer for the Census Bureau. In this next segment, the panelists take questions from the audience. Emery, I'm going to go back to you with the first one from Andrea, because I had the same question. Can you share more about the rapid ATO process? I'm looking to revamp. This is from Andrea, not mm -hmm. me. I'm looking to revamp the current security boundaries and ATO process at my agency. It'd be great to have a base to start from. I think you can look at what Navy did um, as a good foundation for this. You know, my goal to the team was that I wanted them to reduce the ATO time cycle by 50%. They're actually shooting for 60%. <laughs> I said, it's like, I'll settle with 50% at this point. It's the first year. It takes some education. It takes some planning on that. But it really was saying, you know, let's prioritize what is going to give you the biggest bang for your buck and what's going to tell us operational risk is access to sensor data, is access to uh, crowdsource penetration testing results, is priority controls. Like there are certain things that, are greatly more valuable in terms of understanding your risk than, you know what, did I forget to get somebody's signature on a poem? And making sure that we put that energy and effort into the decisions that actually influence our risk and don't just make sure that all of our I's and T's are dotted on our paperwork. You know, I think, you know, 15 years ago, we were struggling with even the most modicum of understanding of what we were working with. Um, but today, you know, it's about making sure that they have the tools and they've got the visibility to their operational risk that they really need. So what we do is we front load operational risk assessment and we deprecate a lot of the uh, paperwork processes that are used to support that. And we can always go back and take a look at that at a, any frequency that we wish. Let me open it up to some others. That same question, uh, fast track ATO, some way you're working on the ATO process to speed it up. That's been the, the albatross hanging around a lot of agencies next. Anyone want to jump in? Bo, Venus? Yeah, I'd like to, to add to that. And, and Emery, you're, you're spot on. It's about the risk, right? So first of all, I, I would think you'd have to establish what is your risk tolerance baseline for your organization? What is that foundational, you know, countermeasures and controls you need to, one, to even operate on your network? Start there. Then um, once you go through the, the process of ATO, once I categorize a system and I select the controls, I think the other key to make it fast is to apply overlays. If your financial system, you put an overlay that can add controls or remove controls. But once you do, you know, step one and two, I think then the pen test does the rest for you. And once you do the pen test, you take the results, you mitigate the results and you go to continuous monitoring. So I think really being able to give an ATO, you know, quickly um, is easy when you understand what is your risk as an organization and you maximize the use of your, as I heard Emery say, your pen test um, capability 
capabilities that you have inherent in your organization because that takes care of steps three and four as well. Um, so I think that's another way that you need to consider. And then lastly, that step zero that, um, that they added in Rev 2 is key. You have to be prepared um, in order to execute the risk management framework. And what that is, is do you have strategy for the cloud? Do you have, and part of that strategy includes securing it. Do you have strategy for what's going to be access to your network? So I think all of that is key in order to um, make the fast, you know, to, to enable fast track ATO. And Jason, this is also an area where the Air Force is uh, leading the way as well. They're working on a model where if you're able to get past their pen testing team, you're good to go, right? So, so they're really trying to see how far they can stretch sort of the attack model of the, the rapid ATO process. So, you know, it, it, again, it's, it's interesting to, to force folks to design systems because they know they're going to get that uh, that full dose of a of a very very skilled pen test team, and that model being sort of the driving force behind real security. But uh, it's an interesting concept. All right, a couple questions have come in, uh, Jamie. Uh, one for you. This is from John. He asks, "What opportunities do you see in intelligence automation and cybersecurity?" Now, this is specifically for Jamie, but I'm sure anyone else can jump in. But start with Jamie. Well, there's a lot of things we can do specifically with AI, and one of them is pattern recognition. In other words, you could set profiles uh, through people's behavior, and once they go beyond or outside the parameters of that behavior, that requires an alarm or something else to look into. Uh, that's just one example. There's a lot of AI out there that's doing that on the insider threat, specifically with egress of data off of the network and onto personal drives. So that's one of many things that we could do. I guess the follow-up question is what you could do. Do you want to tell us what you are doing? Hell no. You never oh. tell your people what the secrets are. Come on, man. <laughs> the first rule of intelligence is nobody knows you're an intelligence. I mean, come on. <laughs> I thought the first rule of reporting is to ask the hard questions. Come on. You're, you're making my job hard. Uh, <laughs> Bo, Venus, anyone? Uh, Emory, you guys want to jump in on the intelligence automation piece a little bit? You know, I think um, we started piloting some new AI tools and techniques within our infrastructure um, at headquarters just to kind of see and how it shakes out. And honestly, we've been very impressed. Um, you know, the number of false positives is significantly lower. Uh, than what we see in some other tools that we've used historically. Um, so we're seeing a lot of potential there. That's why we also put together our big data platform this year so that we can really start leveraging that across and really bringing the researchers that are top of the field here in the labs um, and give them a resource that they can use. So, um, you know, I think it has a lot of potential here. Um, but, you know, again, the hard part is sometimes getting that sensor data from you know, hundreds of different disparate sites into our big data platform so that we actually have something to use. And, you know, so that's one of our bigger challenges right now is we've got certain sensors that we have high visibility to, and then we have other ones that, you know, are desperately in need of integration. Yeah, right? and I wouldn't lose sight of, of the uh, vendor community, the software companies, right? We all leverage um, a lot of these companies out there who have figured out some really cool um, automations uh, and intelligence uh, capabilities within their products. And they have global visibility, right? Much more than the federal government in some, some uh, cases. So, um, you know, companies like Microsoft and Cisco and, 
and, and Amazon, all of these big players that a lot of federal agencies use have some really, really impressive capabilities in these areas that we should be taking full advantage of. All right, Venus, I got a question for you. This comes back to a couple of your pilots you mentioned. Joan asks, can you tell us more about the Forest Service fire pilot you mentioned? Is the purpose of the pilot only to improve the security or to modernize the application? What does the application do? Where is it cloud hosted? And if you can go into the other one, the other pilot too, you, you didn't really mention the, the agency that was doing it, maybe for a reason, but if you can give us more on both. I can't tell you all of the secrets, but I will tell you that what we're doing is modernizing. We start first with just modernizing our current apps. We had two pilots, one where we're going to modernize in force service with the app that they currently have. Just think that when you're in the force fighting community, we have an application that's designed to um, order all the resources we need for firefighting. If it's a helicopter they need, you, there's an app for that, right? Part of this application. So how do we modernize that um, application? So we're using the process for that. So that kind of gives you a peek into to what we're doing. But it's not just about security. It's about how do I make sure that we could add features and functions that um, the end user community is asking of us um, as they're using these apps is, I wish I had an app that does this, or I wish this app does that. Then they can feed that to the um, software factory and have that created and deployed in a short amount of time. And so, no, it's not just about security. It's all about the speed of need as well. On the other side, when I talk about our, our rural development, which of course provides services to rural America, they have the, you know, a, a portfolio the size of a fourth largest bank. So imagine the customers that they have. How do you create applications then um, within that to compete with typical banks? I mean, think about your, your own bank. How many new features and functions do you see on your mobile app or on the desktop app? So we're trying to really compete with the services that um, our customers in that community would receive from a, a typical bank as well as we partner with banks as well. All right. That's a good one. Anyone else want to jump in on, on the app modernization piece? Jamie, I think PTO does a little bit with DevOps, DevSecOps. So you want to just give us a little bit of an update there? The whole thing about DevSecOps is an attitude more than the actual pr procedure or process. Because agility is a way to think about life, not just the way to do it. So there's always a better process. So DevSecOps has that quality or that security built in. And so you really have to change the way people think about how they're approaching the problem. The, the thing is, too, a lot of people think agility with DevSecOps is a free-for-all. And that is the farthest thing from the truth. In fact, it requires a hell of a lot of discipline to be agile because of all the sequential consequences that come in. You know, professionals don't talk about forklift upgrades. There's no such thing. You don't have greenfield development. What you have to figure out is how to synchronize and put in new functionality while you're fixing all the old stuff and making sure it's better. And so because of that, there's a real discipline involved with backlog and prioritizing because you have to ensure that you're always eliminating your technical debt while at the same time delivering value. One, if you don't eliminate the technical debt, you're going to get breached. Two, if you don't deliver value, the business doesn't care and they'll get somebody else. So it's a constant balance. It's a push-pull. And that's where we're at with DevSecOps. I know you guys have been one of the leaders. You've gotten out in front of it from a lot of agencies. So it's good to hear that, that obviously it's, it's having that culture change. 
We have to take a break. Today I'm playing an excerpt of a panel I moderated during a recent FCA Bethesda event on security. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. Today, I'm playing an excerpt of a panel I moderated during a recent FCA Bethesda event on security. My guests on the panel were Emery Sulak, the Principal Deputy CIO at the Energy Department, Jamie Holcomb, the CIO for the Patent and Trademark Office, Venus Goodwine, the Chief Information Security Officer for the Agriculture Department, and Bo Hauser, the Chief Information Security Officer for the Census Bureau. In this final segment, the panelists continue to take questions from the audience. Uh, we have two similar questions I'll, I'll throw out to the group as a general. Kathleen talks about CMMC, the cybersecurity maturity model, and how is it affecting your agency? And Mark asks a very similar question, managing the risk of supply chain threats that were highlighted by the recent solar winds threat discovery. So let's combine supply chain risk management. Does CMMC play a role yet? How are you all looking at it? Uh, I'll just open it up to the group. So we deployed a supply chain um, enterprise solution uh, last year. And we've been partnering to get that and make that available. And I think the thing that SolarWinds has really shown is, you know, we can have a program that looks at the risk posture of all these vendors. And we've been doing it successfully for over a year now. But the hard decision then comes to, again, our, uh, making sure that we have educated authorizing officials, because the one answer that a program doesn't tell you is, what is your risk threshold? And so that is the thing that we're learning from solar winds is, you know, we're quite aware of where the risk posture of solar winds always was. The real question is, how do we educate people on, you know, understanding what that risk is to them and how do they look at it when they're actually making a decision in terms of both procurements as well as authorization for operations. So I think, you know, you're starting to see that where we obviously have talked to a lot of federal agencies who are still in the infancy of trying to get a deployment of a, a, solu a solution around supply chain. But it is one of those things that just having a solution without a clear understanding of what your risk threshold is, is only half the battle. Quick follow-up for uh, Emery. You mentioned supply chain enterprise solution. I did an interview several years ago with the NNSA CIO, I think Wayne Jones, and he talked about something that they were doing. Is this something that you're borrowing from NNSA? Is this something similar but different? Is, is what's, what's the connection? Two pieces. No, it's not borrowing from NNSA. It's a complement to what NNSA is doing. So I think what you see at both NNSA and CSER is a stronger focus on the Intel side and the component level of supply chain. And our focus has been more on the vendors and the tools from a more holistic and more public available information side. So, you know, we're trying to make sure that our side is well blended into the Intel side of the house, but we also want to make something that you can take an action from. So we don't want to make it dependent on, you know, making a, a first understanding of your risk posture, but, you know, when you need to, you can drill down into those complementary programs. And I know NNSA, as an example, is very focused on what they do, national nuclear security. So that doesn't necessarily mean the same for everything across energy departments. So I'm sure that's part of it, too. Bo or, or Venus, from your perspective, you want to talk a little about supply chain or, or, or CMMC and how that fits into your, your current and future looks? 
you know, from the Department of Agriculture standpoint, no, we're not um, fully vetted into um, implementing CMMC. But if you look under the hood of CMMC, what you're going to see a lot of things that we're already doing. We're already doing the NIST controls. We already understand the FedRAMP process. And so the foundation of that certification is making sure one, and, and we keep saying that same word is risk tolerance here, is understanding the risk tolerance that you have for your application for your GSS or whatever product um, that you're creating, understanding that. And so while we're not, you know, on the path of doing CMMC, we are on the path of building a supply chain risk management program that doesn't just look at, hey, you know, third party that I deal with, tell me, you know, how you're going to do incident response or what is your vulnerability management program process like. Um, but it's also looking at them to understand, you know, the type of staff that they have, asking the hard questions about, um, of a third party about what about the, the, those individuals that are on your team? Do they, do you require certification? What type of background investigations you do? So really trying to create a process where you could get, you can understand more about that third party than in the past you have. Now, Everyone on this call knows that, that knowing that wouldn't have prevented solar winds, right? But I think at least being able to make a risk-based decision about I understand the company that I'm doing business with, I think is what we're trying to do in our supply chain risk management. Looking at it from a holistic point of view, making sure that you have certain clauses, you know, in every IT contract that, that's issued, making sure that you know that you are really following up on you know those FedRAM services that you're using, that they're really meeting the milestones stones of their poems. And then again, making sure that that threshold of your risk tolerance is clearly defined. And when it deviates, you have a way of knowing that. So I think looking holistically at the supply chain really is, is really looking holistically at risk management. And supply chain is just one pillar, a part of that, in my opinion. Bo, do you want to jump in on that at all from census perspective? We're dealing with the same challenges that uh, Emory and Venus uh, discussed there, and we're really supporting the Department of Commerce and their efforts in this in this arena as well. So nothing additional to add. It's it's, it's a tough uh, nut to crack, and we're certainly uh, you know engaged in that conversation. Let's go back to Jamie. Though we lost his video, hopefully he'll pop back on. Jamie, I got two questions for you from Andrea and Mike. Both ask very similar questions. Andrea writes, did I understand correctly that videos for training are interactive? The users would have to complete an action before moving forward in the training. Clarify the, how that works. And Mike asks a similar question. What specifically happens when the interactive training identifies an area that requires additional or remedial training? What happens is you're not allowed to go to the next one until you answer the question on the first one or the next successive one. It's a really good training program. We did stop it, however, in evaluation. In other words, there could be a scoring and a rating, and we didn't want to get into whether you're good or bad. We just wanted to get the information out there. So we worked with the vendor to just proceed on to the next without having the score and the rating and, and that, that cloud over your head. Now, as far as the remedial training go, most of the remedial training we're doing is with our fishing attempts. And so if you're caught and you're caught a couple of times, you need some remedial training. So we'll bring in and we'll have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with your ISSO. And so it's really important that whatever systems you're using primarily, that you're able to understand the security implications and why it's so important 
not to click on the link. So that's how we're doing it. And if I could add to that, um, what we're doing uh, along the lines, Jamie, um, gamification is very key in, in cybersecurity training. We learned that through our cybersecurity expo doing the escape room um, this year. It really drives drives home the point about the importance of, of cybersecurity training. But the other thing about phishing, what we've done at agriculture is we've kind of separated our, our users, right? You, there are normal users, but then there are users that if they click on a, a link, like someone with you know enhanced privileges or an individual that may have access to a higher level of data. So when you separate those users, so if one user, if a normal user clicks on a link the first time, you know you get a splash screen that says, "Hey, you, you clicked on the link. You should have known it was a fish because of this." We educate them on the spot. Um, however, we keep metrics for multiple clickers like so the next month because we do phishing exercises on a monthly basis if a user clicks the second time then what happens then now you get training additional training just for phishing but the other part of that and i hate to use the word consequence because it's not consequences because the program is designed to be educational but um then the third time you know if you're clicking on a link we have an ability through our security awareness training that you could go a fast track right because you understand the material but if you are a, a multiple clicker of a fish you don't get to do the fast track. You get to do the entire program um, for those reasons. So using those types of um, incentives, <laughs> so to speak, for indi individuals to really take serious the information and then giving them that, that direct immediate feedback, um, we've seen made a difference because we've noticed that our click rate goes down. But also what's important from that is understanding that who's targeted, you know, is it that our privileged users are targeted more often, or if um, our executives may be targeted more often because of the access to the type of data um, and information they'd have access to. So making that distinction um, was important through, for our um, phishing program as well. One minute or less, give your message back to the listeners, the audience a little bit about speed, security. What should they know? What should they know about what you're doing, how you want to work, how you are going to work in the future. As a CISO, I already communicate with my fellow CISOs about what we're doing in our different agencies and, and we share one with another. When I'm dealing with industry, what I'm looking to get from industry is some things that they're doing innovative as well that I may not have thought of because I am trying to be, you know, proactive, provide solutions before, you know, my customers ask for it, make sure that, you know, security is an enabler so when I'm speaking with industry, I want to understand, so what has worked for you with your other customers and feel free to share that. That's all the time we have for today. You've been listening to an FCA Bethesda panel I recently moderated on security. My guests on the panel were Emery Sulak, the Principal Deputy CIO at the Energy Department. My guests on the panel were Emery Sulak, the Principal Deputy CIO at the Energy Department. Jamie Holcomb, the CIO at the Patent and Trademark Office. Venus Goodwine the Chief Information Security Officer at the Agriculture Department, and Bo Hauser, the Chief Information Security Officer at the Census Bureau. I'm Jason Miller, and you've been listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network.